namaste to everybody so i will be uh, explaining briefly uh, from the genesis how shakta tantra uh, came about and how it is practiced in today's times it will be a brief speech uh, so uh, at the very beginning of uh, there are various scholarly opinions of how you know tantra came about some people tend to believe that it was a parallel path along with the vedic path and things like that but uh, what the evidence that we have uh, as of now uh, very clearly indicates that um, in the uh, earlier half of the last millennium in kashmir where there was the first uh, what is known as the shaiva tantra uh, systems of uh, kashmiri shaivism and the tantric aspects of that were developed from that there was an offshoot at least of uh, and i am not going to the details of shaiva tantra because this talk is specifically about shakta tantra uh, so in uh, shaivism shaiva tantra there were at least a few divisions few parallel lines of development in which there was one stream of scriptures and practices that were related to bhairava as the supreme deity and these were known as the non dual tantras non dual because eventually it comes to the position where the uh upasaka feels a oneness with the deity so that's way in that sense it is non dual uh mind you it is not to be confused with the uh, advaita vedanta of the vedantic stream there are certain philosophical and practical differences in the paths but from the bhairava tantras eventually an offshoot came about uh offshoot in the sense that uh it was believed that as the bhairava tantras progressed well bhairava was the central deity in the bhairava tantras so eventually it was believed that from bhairava it's uh, a more esoteric path a more exclusive and faster and uh, perhaps a more uh, beneficial path was worship of the shakti of bhairava shakti of bhairava is where shakta tantra comes in for the first time and that included uh, you know worship of different forms of the goddess uh, whether it's kali whether it's shripur sundari and there were various other more complex forms that used to be worshiped along with the pantheon of yoginis etc and in doing so they derived a lot of practices which were there in the earlier pashupat shaivism in the earlier kapalika shaivism etc and they integrated that along with a uh, new method of sadhana method was basically the idea was that uh, while there is a certain amount of uh, rules and regulations that we follow in normal society and normal life uh, in this stream of shakta upasana and shakta upasana had its own you know variations and substreams etc so one of the aspects was that it integrated those elements which are considered as more heterodox that is not considered as a part of the normal uh, vedic pantheon of uh, worship vedic system of worship to put it that way so there used to be use of uh, for example one of the older texts mentioned that uh, for certain practices of bhairava you can even uh, offer ritually sanctified alcohol to the deity which is completely uh, abhorrent to the standard vedic path of uh, worship so that was one stream where, from where um, the shakta tantra developed parallelly there was another stream that developed from the eastern india perhaps around the temple of kamakya where a very specific kind of shakta tantra known as the kola system the kola tantra came about so eventually what happened all of them got intermingled perhaps around 10th century onwards 
uh, worship of Shakti as a primary deity instead of just you know Shakti as a as a projection from Shiva, which was the original conception of Shakti Upasana in the Shaiva Tantra. Uh, here, Shakti becomes the primary deity, the main Ishta who has to be approached for all uh, material as well as spiritual benefits of the Upasata. Around 9th, 10th century, it started off as an own stream of its own, along with a lot of scriptures that were written after that, and um, those which we specifically known as the word Tantra today. So, Tantra is a specific technique of worship. That is where Tantra differs from everything else. So it is not necessary, it's not uh, enough to have only, you know, look at a uh, system of worship as merely a form of bhakti movement, as having devotion to the deity, which is of course there, that is a primary prerequisite, no doubt. But where Tantra differs is that there is a certain amount of technicality in which the Upasana is approached, in which the deity is approached. One of the primary things in the Tantric scriptures, uh, as opposed to, for example, the Puranic scriptures, which is more mainstream religious currents that we had in India, is, uh, for example, you'll see that there is very little about the history of the, uh, not just history, or how would you put it, very little about the uh, the stories of the gods, stories of the deities. If you look at a Purana related to a specific deity, you'll find it'll start off with when creation happened, then when, what are the different plays, the leelas that the deity has performed, etc., etc. Then you will have sections on different lineages of uh, divine beings, rishis or kings, etc. Tantra, on the other hand, a typical Tantric text does not go into the history of the deity too much. It straight away will start with a section which tells you why guru is important, what are the lakshanas of a guru, what are the lakshanas of a disciple, uh, what, are the, what is the system of entry into the Tantric path, so that means what are the requisites and methods of Diksha, and then it goes straight into the Upasana of the deity. Because of this reason, the Tantras, specifically the Shakta Tantras, uh, were regarded as a path of Upasana, path of Sadhana, more than the philosophical aspect. So, uh, it is important to mention here that while there was initially a very broad, uh, it started off with that same uh, philosophical base on which uh, Shaiva Tantra of Kashmir was there, the 36 uh, Tattvas of Kashmir of Shaivism was also there. Eventually, it uh, resulted more on the focus of sadhana actually than uh, contemplation of the philosophy. We find evidence of this from texts uh, around 15th, 16th century, which, uh, for example, there's a very interesting uh, statement in one of the tantras of 15th century, which uh, states that there is Shiva and there is Parvati speaking, and there is Parvati asking Shiva that uh, of the six different philosophies that is there, the six main philosophies of Dharma that is there, which of them is the most accurate one? And uh, Shiva just says that uh, you know the six philosophies have been made to confuse people so that they keep arguing which of them is greater. Instead of that, if you keep practicing the Upasana and you enter into a state that is beyond the normal mind, then you yourself will see the reality as it is. This, in effect, was the basic uh idea on which the you know the basic concept on which the way in which progression of tantra happened so it's not that there was no philosophy but a philosophical aspect was considered a secondary to the actual practice of the system so as you practice it causes a change inside you it causes a change in your mind and your perspective of things and as the changes happen therefore you will also understand how um you know what exactly is a deity how you relate to the world, how the data relates to the world, what is the supreme state that you have to reach, etc., etc. And uh, 
if someone asked what is the final aim of the tantric process it was as simply as you may put it that you know uh, the standard idea of moksha liberation is of course there but here there are various states of liberation possible so uh, at the initial very old tantras they do mention for example that it's when the deity actually enters into the upasaka and stays within the upasaka so the upasaka is basically no more just a human being he becomes the deity in effect in the consciousness in his mind that is the highest state because in that state like a like a living deity in this world you are free from the bondages you are free from sorrows and sufferings and things like that and you have a superhuman consciousness so this was consciousness is sort of the rough english equivalent of uh, what was being aimed at and uh, to attain that the primary deity that the tantras looked at was uh, some or the other form of the divine mother now uh, by the middle ages practically there were two divisions of tantras though there are other uh, initially right at the beginning you will have you have the uh, idea that you know there are uh, lord shiva has five different faces so from each of these five faces there is one stream of tantra that comes out one stream of mantras and not just the tantra it's the mantras of the deities that come out all the five faces so together they produce about seven crore total mantras and each of these mantras are a deity in itself so that was the primary idea so this is the second difference you'd find in tantric approach versus for example in the puranic approach to a deity in the puranic approach you have the deity you have a vidraha of the deity there are certain uh, uh, upacharas you can do certain stotras etc various things in the tantric approach the primary thing is the mantra of the deity mantra in fact one of the tantras very beautifully mentions that the mantra is the child of the guru because the guru is the one who gives you the mantra and the deity is the child of the mantra so basically as you keep serving the mantra which means basically you do upasana of the mantra it's another way of getting closer to the deity and uh, there has to be this belief becomes sanguine as one enters and goes deeper into the path of tantra that um, there is absolutely no difference between a mantra and a deity which also means that if you make slight modifications in the mantra therefore the form of the deity also changes so all this technicalities were there and still there not where it's still there very much present in the tantric system eventually in practice what happened is uh, tantra got sort of practically bifurcated into two broad streams one was what is known practiced in uh, eastern india more popularly which is called the kalikula and one which is practiced in southern india which is uh, more popularly known as the srikula or the srividya system uh, in both of these the primary difference was that the central deity whom you are trying to approach is different here in kalikula as the name suggests it's kali who is the main deity whom somebody is trying to approach where there is uh, in srikula it is uh, lalita trikursundari who is the main deity and along with approaching the deity uh, when so for example when somebody says kalikula it doesn't necessarily mean only kali it also means there are auxiliary deities who have to be worshiped in order that one can reach higher into the upasana of kali same applies for srikula also there are auxiliary deities who have to be worshiped in order that one can go into the upasana of lalita chikursundari the second and one of the most vital concepts uh, systems in place which makes tantra different from the other streams is the absolute necessity of initiation in tantra so there is a basic from a step by step gradation of sadhana that is present in the tantras so depending on the caliber of the upasaka 
initially he enters into the tantric stream through what can be called a mantra upadesha which some qualified individual or guru or somebody gives him or her as he keeps doing the mantra upadesha then comes something that is known as the abhisheka diksha now abhisheka is basically a kind of ritual where the you know there is sanctified water and then there is those water has to be sprinkled on the upasaka and there are parts from the tantras which are recited by the guru during that time and sometimes the process can take up to few hours depends on there are variations in different sampradayas in uh, one sampradaya in north india it takes even it may start in the morning say 7 8 and the whole diksha process comes to an end at midnight so this is known as a shakta abhishek diksha where the guru is actually infusing some of the shaktis of the various deities into a sanctified water and with that water he is transmitting that energy into the upasaka now this specific diksha is considered to be very very important in shakta tantra in fact so important that shiva mentions that to enter into the upasana of shakti through the tantric path abhishek diksha is mandatory uh, it's in tantra is not just uh, shakta tantra there is also shaiva tantra there was also there is also vaishnava tantra and at one point we had uh, tantric practices related to ganpati and other deities also each of the deities had their own tantric systems however it is only in the case of shakti upasana that abhishek diksha becomes very important in the case of the other deities whether it is shiva or whether it's the other deities it is not absolutely mandatory that is what some of the tantras declare so given that after the shakta abhishek then dupasaka is supposed to do the sadhanas that is given to him by his guru and as he keeps progressing as he does the sadhana it causes a certain change in his mind in the way he looks at things in his uh, to put it in another way in the tatvas inside his body and when he is fit for it when he has the adhikara for it the guru will give him the higher levels of diksha like this there are there's a gradation of dikshas in formal mainline tantra and i'm only talking about mainline tantric uh, systems i'm not talking about there are various folk tantras and other things you'll find in uh, you know other many places etc they may or may not follow all the systems but uh, those sampradayas and there are many like that which still follow mainline tantra they ensure that there is a there is a you know ascending order of dikshas and each of the dikshas depends on the state of the upasaka so it is not a given that if you have the first level of diksha which is the say uh, shakta abhishek diksha you will get uh, perhaps uh, later on the next stage may come as a purna abhishek diksha you will get a purna abhishek automatically it is not mandatory like that beyond purna abhishek there is in kalikula there is the krama diksha where there are you know all the mahavidya kramas uh, are allowed to be worshiped then there is uh, samrajya diksha and various other dikshas until finally there is something called the purna diksha and all that but very rarely an individual is asked even or is necessary for an individual to have all the levels of diksha sometimes it is possible and in fact it was designed this way that uh, an individual may progress up to a certain level in this lifetime in the next lifetime he may get the opportunity for the next level of diksha and if his upasana is correctly done nature itself the deity itself will provide the opportunity wherever he or she may be born that you know you enter the path again and then you go ahead with your sadhana along with this there is also the basic uh, idea of what is known as the various modes of upasana uh, which is called the achara in this the tantric system looks at the vedic system of upasana which is the standard uh, upasana system that follow most of india follows 
as the vedachara they call it vedachara is the primary the first basic uh, idea which everybody can do beyond the vedachara there is the vaishnavachara beyond the vaishnavachara there is the shaivachara then beyond that this is where comes dakshinachara dakshinachara means basically you do the sadhanas uh, you do mantra sadhana you use yantras and various uh, there are also mudras nyasas and various things which the guru himself will teach the disciple depending on what deity he is worshiping this is where proper tantric vasana starts from dakshinachara beyond that there is something known as the vamachara which is basically vama means the left side so the same upacharas but only in the reverse order of things which means this is where you will have uh, entry of things like the controversial sort of those who are not in the system the panchamakara the five uh, makaras that are used the offerings of um, alcohol can be given to deities offerings of meat can be given to deities to fish and various things but these offerings are very ritualized offerings it's not as simple as just getting something and offering in fact uh, it requires purification it requires a whole lot of uh, processes before these ingredients and these specific ingredients can be given to certain deities and they produce tremendous results if it is correctly done beyond that there is the kolachara which is the in between there is another siddhanta chara but finally there comes the kolachara which is considered as the pinnacle of tantric upasana and it's an entirely monistic system which means that uh, true kolo is one who sees the deity he is worshiping the ishta the form of shakti is worshiping and is present in everything all the three gunas which is uh, the deity is present in sattva guna raja guna tama guna and until and unless anupasaka is able to see the play of the deity in all the three gunas he has not completed his sadhana this is a rare state and a very difficult state though uh, it is true that uh, perhaps in you know general degradation of uh, sadhana processes that has happened over the years there may be many various systems where one can get a kolo diksha very easily these days but uh, the original manner in which it was supposed to happen is that one after the other you go and you finally reach the kolo diksha stage and the kolo diksha stage you enter into a state where you can see the deity working everywhere and then you also go beyond the you know the three gunas you go to the state of the deity which is trigunatita she herself is not bound by the three gunas and you enter into a state of complete oneness with the deity so this in short is how the tantric upasana happens where which it is important to remember that the diksha krama is very important tantra cannot be done without diksha it cannot be done by looking at books it cannot be done by you know uh, i am not talking about other systems they they may have their own processes but tantra from anywhere else other than a living guru who is part of a tradition it simply cannot be learned so easily one can start off a little bit but eventually you'll have to enter somewhere or the other you have to make an entry into the streams that is where it is and the second is the tantric system uh, follows it's very key to look at the tantric upasana of a deity as the mantra the mantra is the most important thing it's closer to the upasaka than everything else you serve the mantra and the mantra in turn gives you something back into your life so this two fundamental approaches are very very important in any uh, any upasaka who has uh, who feels that uh, tantra is the right approach for him or her and enters into the path and uh, beyond that there is of course the mahavidyas which uh, came in later on sort of you know uh, the mahavidya upasanas are very interesting and important part of tantra and mahavidya sadhanas definitely require certain level of diksha and certain competency in the upasana the same deity can be worshiped as a mahavidya as well as worshiped as a normal 
you know, with a certain degree of bhakti and all that. But Mahavidya Upasana, the moment you use the term Mahavidya, it has very specific technicalities involved in it. Specific mantras, specific nyasas, specific, you know, systems in place that has to be applied. Only then it becomes a true Mahavidya Sadhana. So, this in brief, very briefly speaking, this is how Tantra is and this is still how it is practiced even today. Both whether it's Kalikula in the north and whether it's, uh, you know, Srikula in the south. And apart from that, there is also the Shabad Tantra system. But Shabad is not necessarily Shakta Tantra. There are various other deities who are invoked in Shabad Tantra. So I won't go into the Shabad system. So I suppose let's take some questions now. Rajashree, if I may actually start with my first question. Yes. I was indicating towards at the beginning of, uh, you know, before we started uh, the talk. So we had a speaker, Anand Venkatraman, uh, and he spoke on interpreting Tantra as subjective neuroscience. This was maybe in 2019 sometime. Right. And uh, through the course of his talk towards the end, he actually mentioned that he had read a book by Dr. Subhash Kak called The Gods Within. And then mm -hmm. he talked about that uh, of referring to Shankar Bharadwaj Khandavali's work, uh, mm -hmm. who's the editor of Indopedia and also, mm -hmm. you know, writes a lot on Tantra, mm -hmm. that deities are not beings uh, out there somewhere. They are basically mantras, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. what you repeated as well. Mm -hmm. And they're a portal to access different parts of your brain, your physical, mm -hmm. physiological mm -hmm. structure of the mm -hmm. brain, which opens up mm -hmm. with the practice or japa of a mantra. Mm -hmm. So are deities real? Are they beings beyond the current, the realm that we live in? Or mm -hmm. are they are they simply energies which, you know, we get access to by their worship or by the japa of a mantra or vigraham? So uh, let me, you know, give a small example. Suppose you you are here and there is the world around you. And you are looking at the world and you are understanding. And suppose you put on a certain contact lenses, suppose those who have spectacles or something. Suppose a contact lens is a little fancy contact lens. I don't know if such a thing is available in the market, which uh, has a certain color tinge, blue or something. So you wear that and you look at the world, uh, regardless of whether the world outside exists or does not exist. To you, the world is going to look in that, say it's a blue colored lens, it'll look blue to you. Or it's a yellow colored lens, it's look yellow to you. Now, this question, this dichotomy that you see, whether the deities are inside or it's unlocking some potential inside you or whether they're outside, is mainly because you are imagining at the beginning that there is an outside objective world and there is you, who is a subjective entity. But your interaction with the world at every time is also changing certain things inside your consciousness. Your Chaitanya is interacting every moment with the world around you and because of the interaction it is taking feedback it is reacting so it is having a uh, it's coloring your perspective of how the world is so this is i'm saying at the beginner level and at the highest level of if you if you look at it the philosophically you know the highest uh, siddhis that you attain and by siddhi i don't mean just a miraculous power where an individual becomes a very high level upasaka and becomes one with the universe. Suppose you become one with the universe. I'm just literally saying that and um, not in a figurative way, but literally your consciousness expands. Your Chaitanya goes to the level where you are, you feel an actual oneness with the universe. So the question is the deity inside you or outside you? It does it becomes a meaningless question because you are the universe and you are the universe, not in just a, you know, a very limited sense of the term. 
you are the universe in a practical sense it is very much possible uh, i mean i I'll, admittedly it's rare it's not so easy for everybody but it's possible there are people who have done it at the very high levels of tantric uh, upasana and tantric siddhis you may find uh, uh, for example there are stories uh, and i some of them i had seen with very great upasakas uh, the individual may be sitting here at one moment somebody else sees him at another different place another person sees it another different place how is that even possible but whether it is doing or not doing first thing is that is it real or not yes which people are actually having an experience that is absolutely extraordinary and beyond normal so if that kind of a change is possible in a human being it is also possible at a very high level those who are capable of it where the universe becomes one with you and at that state the question that whether the deity is inside or outside is meaningless from a practical point of view though uh, when you are doing the sadhana it is very very good to think of the deity both first as outside why that is because you will you will see changes and i'm uh, this is a thing that is not that difficult also to attain because there are many upasakas and some experience of the other of the deity will come to you if you do it correctly and if you if you have slight amount of capacity and that experience initially is not going to be only an experience internally that i'm sitting and doing japa and i feel a lot of bliss was up theek hai you will also feel you will also see that deity and you will see that it is not a figment of your imagination because when a specific deity comes he or she has a specific nature it will also cause certain changes around you practical changes it is very important in fact that is one of the ways in which you realize that your sadhana is actually going to some level um, and to put it in another way uh, let's keep deities aside for a moment it's difficult uh, it may be difficult for a lot of people to actually access a deity much more easier than accessing deities for example is accessing what is called spirits whether they are lower level entities because uh, they are more bound to the earth to put it another way and also they are more gross than a deity so there are places uh, not just places there are people who have had experiences of various kinds of you know this spirit or some kind of a whether even if it's scary the fact that such a thing exists outside of you at least that is how it appears to you initially that there is something outside of me here at this specific place that can cause a disturbance uh, if that can exist why cannot deities exist outside they will be outside and they will also be inside they will be inside when your consciousness changes in fact as i said finally there is a state and this is a very high state where the deity enters into the body of the upasaka and stays there the body becomes a yantra the mind becomes a mantra such an individual at that high state whatever he says is automatically going to fulfill because his his words become siddha his actions become siddha so that is uh, one way of looking at it our deity is actually you said that they become uh, you know the consciousness of the universe itself mm-hmm. but i have also heard in many instances in in my conversations that deities are actually limited or you know so you can't go to saraswati for and worship saraswati a vigraham at least and ask for i don't know winning against winning a war for example you have to go to the right deity for the right purpose and cause and so can you help elaborate this a little bit yes so this is the first basic way in which you approach a deity uh, and i'm here by deity i mean only the major deities i'm not talking about there may be a uh, smaller minor deities also in various uh, realms of existence so these major deities they have their own domain they have their own specific uh, 
areas in which they are extremely competent and in which they, uh, you know, if you approach the specific deity, if you approach that specific, uh, suppose you approach a deity of war and you need uh, the victory, then that is the right way to do about it. Now, suppose you want to realize the deity completely, it is very much possible for whatever the deity is, one specific deity, be it Shiva, be it anybody else, to take you also into the higher pantheons, higher uh, let's put it higher registers, higher frequencies of the same deity, where you may see a certain oneness of the deity. So there is an Advaitic experience that comes specific to that deity. And that is a very rare thing. I mean, I'm saying only that it comes at a very high level. It's not that simple. Neither will it come on day one to anybody or it may take many lifetimes if possible. So, for example, there's a deity of uh, war. But what is war exactly? It's a strife. There's a conflict going on. So if you have that Advaitic experience, uh, of the deity, you may actually see that right from the moment life has come to this plane, uh, to earth till now and till the end, there is always at every level from the, from the, you know, microcosmic level to the cosmic level, the universal level, there is always a friction, there is always a war going on, there is always a struggle. So it is this, this principle that is governed by the deity, it is this deity who is governing everything. And then you feel a certain kind of oneness with that. You understand that the deity is so universal. It was way beyond what you can imagine. It was there even before uh, perhaps even the earth was created. The deity was there. It will be there tomorrow if the earth vanishes. That principle is there. So in this manner, a deity can initially, yes, uh, initial approach of a deity is very much it's possible to approach them for a specific uh, gain or specific uh, desire what you have. And that is actually... Uh, true for all polytheistic systems of Vipassana, whether it's uh, Hinduism, I mean, I don't know if polytheism is the right word for it, but basically where there are multiple deities. So whether it's Hinduism, whether you look at the classical civilizations, which were before the Abrahamic civilizations came in the West, it was all the same concept that you approach a deity and the deity has a certain ability, a certain function in the universe, certain domain in which it is supreme. And if you approach that deity in that particular domain and you need a benefit so you approach them with a specific manner there are certain things the deity likes certain things the deity dislikes accordingly the upasana method is designed by people who have the capacity to see that and you do the upasana and you may get some benefit from the deity what is beyond deity yes there is something not beyond exactly but there is a principle which is completely detached from everything you call it whether you call it the Atman, whether you call it the Brahman, or whether you call it fate, or whatever name you can put to it. Yes, there is something which is detached, absolutely, and that is beyond, or you can call it the absolute. And if you look at the um, the Shaiva Tantric systems, uh, let's call it the Parashiva, the Parabhairava, somebody who is way beyond everything. Only question is that, how are you going to approach that? entity suppose there's a being like that who has no attachments to anything or oh, your your and why will you even approach that deity the first first uh, that supreme entity what is it that you want to gain out of that only reason you can gain only thing that you can gain out of that supreme uh, entity whether it's brahman or etc is to gain the perspective of absolute objectivity and that brings absolution any absolute idea also brings its own benefits, for example, a certain sense of immortality inside a certain uh, going beyond the conditions of the material plane, sort of. Or, or simply the idea of moksha, for example, Ramana Maharishi, no, the constant what, repetition that there is no other. So, No, no, that is not required here. My, my point is that suppose you, suppose you enter that 
an equation with that kind of an entity. Uh, that is fine. But then the next day you cannot say that why are Hindus being persecuted? Why this is that? That that thing doesn't care whether you survive. Yeah. So you cannot have at one point, this is the problem for a lot of people. I see that specifically those who have a uh, little bit of understanding of, you know, because Vedanta is very popular these days and it's uh, widely read, uh, etc. So they want to worship the Supreme, very good. But at the same time, they are worried that why am I not getting the job? Why is my community facing this problem? So if you have that kind of a consciousness, why this is happening, why that is happening, then your worship of that entity is anyway failing. So in that case, and given this understanding, the rishis and the great masters, they had this graded system of Vipassana. You start with something that is more relevant for you. You are in class one, but you directly want to give PhD level exams, so you are going to fail. So this is how you go in a graded system and the same deity, in, specifically in the tantric perspective, suppose you are worshipping Kali, at one point Kali herself will become that principle as you, your own condition changes. If a person in sadhana is deeply connected to the mother, and worships her, would that automatically make him her, her Shakta Upasaka? Uh, yes, like, if you're technically, if you're worshipping Shakti, then it is a, then you are a Shakta Upasaka, but it is important to understand that, uh, well, you are a Shakta by your disposition. Whether you're an Upasaka or not, that we have to see. Shakta by disposition is somebody who is deeply connected to the Divine Feminine, the Divine Mother, Okay, whatever form of the Mother. But uh, connection to achibata, to first stage. Even remember that even the greatest of uh, siddhas had to pass through the system of upasana because it is difficult. It is not easy. Just bhakti is not enough. If bhakti were enough, then the deity would appear in front of you at this very moment. If your bhakti was that pure, if your jnana was that pure, if your vairagya was that pure, because it is not pure, that is why you are a human being. That is why you have to go step by step, working on yourself as well as following the paths recommended by people who have actually walked the path and succeeded. That is why the Upasana comes in. So you become a Shakta Upasana when you follow the Shakta systems. And you become a Shakta Tantric Upasana when you follow the Tantric systems of Upasana. So that is the technical difference if you ask me. Okay. Next, so follow up question by the same uh, person. Mm -hmm. Please say something uh, about Ma Kamakya. And I would just sort of add that if you could talk a little bit about the uh, the menstruating cycles of the Kamakya Mandir. It was very intriguing. We had a talk by Sino Joseph on Kamakya Mandir and she talked about it. That seemed so bizarre and it's probably commonplace. But to mm -hmm. deracinated people like myself, mm -hmm. I guess it seems very bizarre. So if you could reflect a little bit upon that. So Kamakya is, in my personal opinion, perhaps, the most powerful of all Shakti Peters, most powerful. There is no limit to what Kamakya is. And whatever I can say is perhaps maybe 5%, 10% of what the, the deity really is, living deity. And I'm saying that uh, one is that, you know, from a distance you have some theoretical knowledge, yes, I have this deity, etc. And another is to enter into the mandala of Kamakya and actually see how she works. Then it's a fascinating thing. When I, this is a temple with which I've been I think perhaps first time I visited was in 2013. Then there's not been a year when I haven't visited uh, Kamakya, and sometimes multiple times in a year. So uh, Kamakya, first of all, is a very very old temple, very old temple. I mean, forget the main structure, the Garbhagriha, 
I was reading somewhere, some, I think, uh, scientists from the Guwahati University and all had done some testing, which, and the stones in that uh, near the Garbhagriha and all that. So it is at least uh, close to 2,300, 2,500 year old place. So at that specific spot, for such a long period of time, there was a conception that there is a huge amount of tremendous presence of a great deity and Shakta deity. It's Shakti, there's no doubt about it, form of Shakti that is there. And uh, let's call it Mahamaya for lack of, for without going to differentiation. Um, and then we find that by 9th century, the Kalika Puran that was composed was from around the Kamakya temple. Uh, it considered Kamakya as a deity who is both Kali as well as she is also Tripur And this is the uniqueness of this deity. Now, after few more centuries, there were more tantras specifically written uh, for Kamakya, not just written. I mean, there are tantras which have sections devoted to Kamakya. It's, you will see that the deity of Kamakya, if you see a typical image of uh, the deity, there are, you will find Ma Kamakya having f uh, six different faces and there are 12 arms. Okay? And she sits on a lotus and the lotus comes out of the navel of Shiva and Shiva is lying on a lion. So this whole iconography of the deity was basically the six faces are six different deities who are inside one, which means basically Kamakya can be worshipped as Chikur Sundari, can be worshipped as Shamunda, can be worshipped as Durga, etc. etc. six. And each of them have their own complete system of worship and method of Upasana. Now, the name Kamakya became more popular because it is when the deity turns into her form as Kamakya, which is one of the six forms, that is when she becomes a boon giver, which means anything that is asked of her in that state, Kamakya is a particular state. When she acquires that state of Kamakya, whatever you ask, you will be getting that. That is the first principle. But it is not that simple as it sounds, uh, you know, the way I'm putting it. So it requires a lot of upasana. Uh, and the central place of Kamakya is basically not a, there is no vigraha inside. It is a cave and inside the cave there is a water that flows out. It is inside that cave, inside that water that flows out. That is where the date is. So that's why there are certain uh, terms which are used in tantras. So she is referred to as the avyakta vigraham, which means that one is unmanifest. She is a deity who is unmanifest. Yes, there is a Utsava Murti of Kamakya if you enter the main temple, but the main deity where it is there is basically it's not, um, there is no Vigraha there. There's a cave and there's a water flowing and that is where she is. And there is no, uh, it is in the atmosphere inside that cave that she sits. Somebody who has the subtle vision may perhaps even see the deity. And those who don't, they go there, do Namaskara. And interesting thing about Kamakya is that you don't do uh, normal in other places, you fold your hands and do Namaskara. Here it is important to touch that water and take a sip of that water. That is the way. Sparsha Darshan is the thing. You have to touch that deity and that water. Now, where Kamakya, why it becomes so important in Shakta Tantra is because Kamakya is known as the Yonipita. Yonipita means basically it is where creation starts in one sense. That is uh, the beauty of this is that any kind of Shakta Upasana of any deity, any, any form of Shakti, whether it is the highest, um, uh, you know, the para forms or whether uh, somebody so inclined to worship yoginis or somebody so inclined to worship the yakshinis or any of the form, any female form of deity can be worshipped in and around the Kamakya temple. 
that is why it was so prized even before and even now uh, the other thing is as you mentioned kamakya because it is the yoni pitha the other thing that was noticed is that for a few days in a year the water that comes out from that cave turns reddish in color now there may be a scientific explanation for this and all that but the way uh, the way the tantric perspective of this is that during those four days when the water comes out turns red it is equivalent to the deity who is having a periods the temple is closed in that time there are no fire rituals that can be conducted in fact anybody who has a any uh, who has been able to enter into the mandala of this deity and it is not that simple mind there are it's a it's a belief among the kalikula uh, tantric upasakas across north india those who have any connection to kamakya is that uh the deity tests this other very much yes the deity will put tests on the path and if you cross those tests only then you will be able to go higher and higher and that is also because kamakya is basically a, uh in one way if, if you look at it there is inside near the kamakya main temple there are all the 10 mahavidya temples also and all of them are interconnected they are all forms of kamakya so kamakya is like a physical manifestation of a specific level of tantric diksha that is known as the purnavishek diksha so once you have the purnavishek diksha you have the authority to worship any mahavidya because kamakya herself turns out changes herself into any of the mahavidyas that is a tremendous capacity uh, plus the process of worship in kamakya is entirely tantric so there is offerings of uh, ritualized alcohol etc there are sacrifices everything is done as per the tantras in fact Uh, it was believed there is a story in one of the tantras where vashishtha actually comes to kamakya and is trying to worship the deity and he uh, tries for 1000 years and he fails and he is about to curse the deity then when he hears a, a divine voice when he hears the voice of brahma his father because vashishtha is the mind born son and brahma tells him that you cannot worship this deity in the vedic way so he tells him you go to a place called somewhere perhaps in tibetan area and all this places and there you will find a buddha rupi narayan so this is a buddha but not the gautama buddha it is a buddha of a much earlier era who is actually narayan and he will teach you how to do have the you know worship this deity so he goes there and i think this this even broadly is mentioned in many tantras not just one so he goes then he sees that there is this man you know sitting down and uh, he isn't looking particularly very dressed up in the traditional way and there is in front of him there is meat there is fish there is alcohol and there are three beautiful women around him and he stands and he says that what will this man teach me is he looks like a you know individual has fallen from the path so he gets very angry that is when there is a dialogue there's a conversation that happens and that man turns out to be the buddha that he had heard about and he tells him that how this how the process of uh, panchamakara is to be used for worship of certain deities and why this is a faster and a more appropriate method in the kali yuga specifically says as kali yuga will increase these are the methods which will work much faster than the traditional methods which will be slow so after he learns the process of doing the upasana and then he goes to uh, not kamakya he goes to tarapit which is another uh, temple in uh, bengal and he uses those methods to worship the deity and he attains very fast siddhi siddhi here doesn't mean uh, you know the communion with the deity sort of let's put it that way so the upasana of kamakya is entirely tantric perhaps there is i don't know if there are too many temples in india where you can say that the uh, system of upasana is tantric but kamakya is one of them tarapit is one of them 
so the deity of kamakya is like a many sided mirror i mean this is not something which is mentioned in text but this is perhaps a realization that people can have if you connect with it so the, depending on the consciousness of the upasaka who is trying to approach she modifies herself and presents herself in that manner and she can turn into any female form of a deity any female form and whether you are worshiping saraswati whether you are worshiping kali whether you are worshiping lakshmi or any of the mahavidyas that one deity who is abhyakta who turns into that and appears to the upasaka in that form this is the strangeness and the great power that is kamakya it's wonderful brings me to another thought uh, rajarshi mm. that greeks have their own ideas of gods and goddesses chinese have their own i was watching about chinggis khan and he mm. actually used to have visions of tengri who's the yeah blue sky mm. devi so in our tradition why do we not have access to the same those deities which are part of other traditions are there different deities in every tradition or are they simply energy so, forms and we are creating them based on our you know traditions or you know that no, sort of brings me back yeah please there are some deities which are perhaps universal in uh, multiple cultures universal because they appear in different cultures but there is always some modification on based on the specific kind of people the society that is trying to approach the deity deities do modify themselves it is not that deity the iconography of a deity how does it actually come about so there is say for example kamakya i'm just to give the same example so here is the text mention at one point that she is a vector so she is unmanifest at the same time when doing an upasana there is a specific form of kamakya and in fact many forms i'm just saying one of the main majorly known forms where she has six uh, 12 arms uh, and there are weapons in each of the arms and there are six faces and she sits on a lotus and etc so how did this iconography in fact come about this comes about when there are people who are very advanced say the uh, call them the rishis or call them the acharyas or something they are worshiping and they have an intuitive understanding of the form and this understanding is also given by the deity herself she says that this particular form this particular iconography if you worship if you approach then your upasana is going to succeed so this uh, iconography of each deity and each of the iconographies also contains clues to the path that will lead to the deity which means if a deity has weapons then there is a more martial deity and that will require certain uh, approach or certain kind of mantras which are more uh, in tune with the nature of the deity so these iconographies of deities will depend a lot on what kind of people are approaching them uh, for example shiva is one of those deities rudra the vedic rudra is very easily one of the one of those deities which is perhaps also there in uh, earlier uh, indo european cultures almost everywhere some of the other form of shiva or shiva like deity you will find there so it is reasonable to assume and i am not saying that a complete correlation between every deity of every culture and hindu deities can be found but it's reasonable to assume that there are at least a few of our major deities who may have appeared to other uh, you know cultures not monotheistic i don't know what term to use being polytheistic or heathen or whatever or the classical cultures let's put it that way uh, so it's very much uh, reasonable to assume that many of the deities who we worship did also appear to some of the earlier cultures but it had its own modifications based on the people who were approaching central energy remains the same sri aurobindo in one of his writings i think he writes that who we worship as mahadevi chandi is also becomes athena to the greeks and athena was one of the 
deities who used to be worshipped for winning victories and battles and various things in building cities and uh, someone who is equally wise, things like that. So yes, some correspondence can be done, but uh, uh, that is only up to the scholarly level. So, which means that suppose you are a Hindu, you're worshipping this deity and you find that, okay, that deity has a similarity with what uh, some of your deity, you cannot use this method of personative to them. It will not work. And if it's an old culture that is already sort of non-existent, its vital power is gone, then uh, rediscovering the methods of sadhana is way more difficult. That is the only experts can do that. Ordinary people can't do that. I mean, somebody of that caliber has to be born in that culture and find out the right way to approach the deity. So all that is more theoretical. So you're saying that the the, the way of approaching Tingri or mm. Tess, who was the mm. Uh, mm. goddess of, of a river called Tess in, in mm. Mongolia, those, mm. those ways of approaching them may have been lost at this point in time, but they could be accessed if somebody had that access. Perhaps, yes. That's uh, same sorry. for Athena and yes. others. Yes, that's the same thing I'm saying. That to approach them, you'll have to find the way of approach. And because what happens is that once the that is why the importance of tradition and parampara, because tradition keeps the knowledge alive. It's not just text. Texts are one part. There are certain nuances in the sadhana process, various things. You know, okay, I have to worship this deity first, and this deity has to be placed at this position, this etc. etc. This mantra so many times. This whole passing down of the knowledge of the Vidya is important and possible only when there is a living tradition. Once that living link is lost, to rediscover that is much more difficult. I mean, you can do a very theoretical discovery, okay, that you know there are certain similarities between this deity and then certain similarities between that deity. But it will remain only up till that. It is not going to lead to a realization so easily. And so in our tradition, if there were seers who, uh, I mean, of course, who reach a certain level of perception and ability, they'd be able to access Athena or Tengri as well from our tradition, you're saying. Sure. I mean, if somebody is of that caliber, definitely. I mean, you, but another point has to be mentioned. So if a person of tremendous, say, a Rishi-like being is born today, uh, assume who has the capacity to actually uh, connect to any deity anywhere in the world and uh, I'm saying that that honestly connect I mean there are a lot of people in my experience I've found many who are half delusional their claims of seeing deities are basically their own Mankai Brahma reality but suppose there is somebody who is genuinely that capable he or she will be able to connect to deities if the deity is still interacting with the world it is very much possible that deity may recede in the background and may not want to interact with the world, oh, humans. Wow. Yeah, oh, that's, that's possible. possible. It's not, yeah. They have a personality of their own. It's just like human beings have only their personalities are far grander than ours because they live for uh, almost infinite amount of time from our perspective. Okay. So, and the deity they, may not. Sorry. Uh, then I assume that they would have their own words. For example, one during one of my conversations, uh, uh, on on a similar topic with another uh, another person I turned to for having such conversations, uh, we spoke that you know all these JNU walas and talking about Dur Durga being this Aryan and killing a Dalit Mahishasur, all this nonsense that they've been peddling. Um, he, he actually mentioned that you know we got to impress upon our courts, for example, that these are. Um, situations or incidences not necessarily from the human itihasa but they are happening from another realm 
they are incidents real incidents perhaps but happening in a different dimension in another world which is not mm-hmm. accessible to us and we are simply people who can are interacting with the deities and being able to see or access these incidents and try and bring them in their own lives to recreate what has happened for example the killing of mahishasur mm-hmm. uh, what do you have a comment on this are they no, i think they, that's a real world happenings in a different world uh not a different world but different plane in the same universe maybe that happened some long time ago or something so again there are two perspectives of this a did it literally happen perhaps in some world it happened and maybe at a very very ancient time when it is possible even that uh, at a time when this was very few and only selected few a prehuman yeah. or somebody okay. something like that uh, but at the same time these events have a very huge impact on how, let's put it this way that uh, event of that magnitude has an impact in the subtle planes when a person does the upasana correctly and is capable etc he can again see the whole incident happening in his mind's eye but this is not an illusional it's not imagination so i'm imagining the text says that now the goddess is taken a weapon and is killing somebody so i'm imagining imagination here it requires a different kind of mind your normal mind cannot access that plus each of these also have internal correlations a story of a deity is a story that has happened outside that can be accessed even now even though it has happened outside and it is also something happening inside it is happening all these three are realities it is not that it is a is reality if it is outside then it cannot be inside me it is happening all these three at the same time and that is why the method of upasanas that we have, that have been designed for people and things like that are so brilliant because they take into account there is uh, let me put it this way the human the hindu system uh, understands human psychology better than any other system in the world it knows what is it that is required to make a psychological change in an individual how does it work on the mind how does it work on the tattvas how does it change your perspective of things etc so instead of going into the complexity and intellectualizing too much they say that okay you start doing it first you read the devi mahatam you do it in a particular way okay you have to do the devi mahatam you take an initiation you chant this specific mantra so many times then you sit then you sit every day and you chant doing keep doing this for 40 days 2 months 3 months and then see if you have an experience then see for yourself if the date is inside or date is outside if you have a genuine experience you'll never forget not in 100 lifetimes also it will become planted inside your soul a genuine experience in one day so like this I've, i've heard other speakers also say that that the relationship has changed it's that it's as if they are real even while doing my daily upasana it's as if i'm interacting i don't see but it's it's real it's part of me very beautiful of course i have no experience of that but i just want to go back and ask a sort of a related question just for reaffirmation so all the sadhana of deities in in like a graded system you mentioned is for human well being would that be accurate to say that if no, we no. want to win a war if we want to do no no not necessarily human well being is only a side effect of the upasana it is the secondary part and upasaka does not only enter into the and i am specifically talking about the tantric system your aim is to change yourself there is nothing fantastic about being a human being 
Okay, let's first understand the basic concept. Right from the moment humans came through the process of evolution until now, for every good that humans have done as a species, there's a lot of negative things that you have done because we are an insecure species. And uh, the understanding is whatever system you follow, whether Hindu, this, that, etc., there is something not proper, something that needs modification, something that needs improvement in the human condition. So the whole point of Vipassana is to go beyond the human condition. And to go beyond the human condition, one system says, okay, you attain moksha, which means you don't have to come back here. Some other system says, no, I want to live here, enjoy the benefits, but I want not to be like a human being. How does that happen? A deity enters into you, suppose you have gone to a very high level. Then you are not you anymore. Your thoughts are not yours. Your action is not you. A deity living among human beings is an entirely different thing than... Uh, a human living among another human being, a society of human beings. The whole point of stress, of striving, of desire, wanting something, failing to achieve that, this, that, etc. That whole thing swept aside. It doesn't think like that. It is entirely different. Of course, I'm saying that is the end step. It's not something that will come right on day one. Day. If Tantra is a queen, even though difficult path, why haven't all sincere seekers chosen it over yogic sadhana or bhakti sadhana? So, first of all, the whole reason why so many paths are given is because there are different tendencies in people. See, this is the beauty of dharma, the beauty of the rishis who were who propounded the various dharmas. So they knew that there are various methods of sadhana, there are various processes, and depending on uh, which individual is capable of what based on his uh, inner propensities on the things that he may have done in past lives, his actions, etc. There's a certain orientation uh, he will have. So he chooses which path suits him. So because Tantra is a very fast path, and there is no doubt about it, but every fast path also has certain uh, negative, not negatives, but you have to be cautious. So you can drive your car very fast, but unless you're a very good driver, you may also make some mistake and that can lead to an accident. So taking all these things into account, Somebody who is fit for Tantra will always end up in Tantra. And those who are not fit for it or those who do not have a liking for it, there are a lot of people who are there who may not like this. They may like something else. They may like doing Vasana in the Bhakti mode or some other system. So they'll go to that. I mean, this, uh, this is why there is a democracy of paths given. Regarding Nam Japa for mm. maintaining counts, which mala should be used for different forms of Shakti, Shiva, Vishnu? And his avatars, Ganpati and Surya, can Rudraksh Mala be used for all, or is there any specific protocol to be followed? Um, I'll just add a sort of additional question. I think this is the uh, Pancha Mahadevatas who are being spoken about here, and I have a slightly uh, connected question: Isn't Skanda worship also, or Skanda considered also part of the um, the the five main uh, deities? the major deities. Uh, so maybe connected but yeah definitely skanda is in fact at one point he was his worship was very popular across india now it is confined to the south but uh, definitely is one of the major deities and not just the five major but let's uh, the concept of the five deities come specifically from advaita tradition there are other traditions also uh, yes definitely skanda is one of the major major deities among hindus and regarding the question of malas it on an average any uh, worship of uh, Shiva or any form of Shakti or somebody belonging to their pantheon 
can be worshipped using either Rudraksha or uh, Svatika. For Vishnu, there are various other malas. Tulsi malas are there and different other things. But this is the basic concept. Malas can also be changed depending on there are certain specific mantras of Shakti which will work very well with certain other kinds of mala. For example, if you are worshipping uh, Baglamukhi, for example, one of the Mahavidyas, it is very good to use a mala made of Hundi, something that is yellow, or of even of yellow hakik, etc. There are certain prayogs, certain sadhanas of uh, certain forms of Chandi which work very well if you use a mala made of red coral. So like that. So these are, as a basic rule, yes, Rudraksha malas are very good for most Shiva, any Shiva related form, any Shakti related form. Spatik mala is also very good. But if there's a specific sadhana you want to do, it is always best to check with your group. So we could actually get into worship of maybe different, some form of Devi to actually solve problems, uh, say in, in, in our country, for example. Or to set a right direction for our country. If we, if we were, if many of us would do it, or how how would that work? Because we did talk about this in the context of that. If you want to talk about uh, Brahman, finally, then then that, that has no. Uh, you you said that it has no interest in whether whether you survive or not. Yes, correct. As Hindus, for example. Mm. So as a mm. corollary, if we want that to happen, then perhaps that could be done by accessing Devi worship? In theory, yes. In practice, the difficulty is that you have to be of that caliber. You find people of that caliber. See, it's like that. What I talked about, why the gradation of Adhikaras is based. So what uh, can be achieved by a very high caliber Upasaka, even 15 to 20 high caliber Upasakas, a thousand average caliber Upasakas will not be able to get it. Where do you find those 15 high caliber Upasakas? It is not that simple. If that were that simple, then the world would have changed by now. So, I'm, and obviously there's a lot of political aspects involved in this and that, but purely from the sadhak's point of view, uh, let's put it this way, that sadhana is not at all easy. It requires a tremendous amount of sacrifice. It sounds very nice from the outside. The moment you enter, as you go deeper, you have to keep sacrificing things from your material life. Sacrificing, sacrifice is the key word for progress in sadhana. Without sacrifice, you cannot go. And sacrifice is not just internal sacrifice. Sacrifice of your circumstances, of things, various, etc. Only then you are at, at a position where you can say, okay, I will do this ritual and this deity will come and help me out. And not just me, it will help all my people, etc. So the first step is perhaps to create good quality process. That itself is a difficult thing in my view. In multiple posts of yours, you have specifically cautioned against directly doing homers as against propagated by a few others, I'm guessing. Can you explain your position on this? Uh, yeah, I have been clear on this for quite some time. So there is no, uh, whether it's a tantric system or whether it's a Vedic system, there is absolutely no scriptural sanction for doing homas without doing japa. In fact, uh, specifically in the tantric system, uh, tantric upasana, shaktu upasana, not just tantric, shaktu upasana. So the idea was that you do japa, then you do a part, one-tenth of that japa count, what you complete, you do homa into the fire. One-tenth of that you do in true into, uh, you know, you give tarpana to the deity, just like you give tarpanas to pitras, you give tarpana to the deity. And then you do something known as marjara or 
abhishekam uh, depending on the deity a little bit of differences and then you feed people 10 people or something like that only then the mantra system works properly then why is it designed this way because in this manner you will go through each of the chakras and each of them will get activated now if you apart from japa every other of these processes whether it's a homa whether it's tarpana whether this or that if you keep overdoing them without any checks and balances initially it may feel very good eventually it is going to bring you down bring you down means it's going to cause confusions it is going to cause obstacles in your path uh, the prime example of this is till date i have never found a single person who has violated this basic krama of upasana uh, or not done japa for example and done something else whatever it may be of the five these are called the angas the limbs of mantra sadhana mind you all of them are mantra sadhana whether you are doing a homa the moment you are adding a mantra adding swaha to the name it is a mantra sadhana that you are doing in fire so if you do a mantra sadhana in fire or water or some other tattva and you keep activating it without balancing it with the other tattvas initially it is like having steroids initially your system will feel amazing only later on it is going to cause a significant amount of damage and the prime uh, reason why i say this is another reason is that i have not found a single individual who has violated this scheme and taken to any uh, exclusive worship to any of the tattvas apart from japa japa is different and attain to the highest i mean uh, so the situation becomes like this that you are theoretically saying that i want to go to the himalayas but you really don't know if you will reach there because your google map is not showing clearly because there's nobody who has actually taken your path and reached there what has happened is people have taken the path through the angas of sadhana which is all of them which is japa one tenth homa and this and that you do this is the process of mantra purusharan which is called or the limbs of mantra sadhana so this people have attained to the highest state so which means that this is the path that has worked for people but that path leaving everything aside taking one say homa for example and endlessly doing uh, there is not one single example that i have seen of anybody till date who has attained to a uh, highest state of upasana by only male doing this not one example everybody but japa can do that japa is a different thing because there is a process in japa what it does is that if you keep doing japa intensely at a certain point and if you have certain abilities it takes you to a meditative state and it can also make you access the akash tattva which cannot be accessed so easily by the other systems of upasana what is only what is of akash tattva akash tattva is what takes you to closer to the deity let's put it that without the akash tattva you will not attain to the highest states so japa is that is why japa is so important but apart from that also this is the inner significance apart from that also when you are doing mantra upasana you are doing japa you create a form of the deity through japa and this is something that is experiential you can see that and then you add the mantra through each of the tattvas which is you do a bit of it to the fire and see this is how it is beautifully designed so one tenth of the count of japa is enough that amount of invocation of fire is enough because fire is very aggressive fire is a fantastic thing i mean uh, using homas is a terrific thing but only if you do it in the right manner so adding fire adds shakti to the form that you create through japa and then using water and you know finally feeding people is the last step why you feed people because if there is any mistake that you might have done to any of the processes by feeding and not just any person specific to the mantra you are doing so if you are doing you can feed brahmins good uh, you know brahmins who 
follow the acharyas and who do their upasana properly not just brahmins in name and not doing anything usse koi fayda nahi hoga if you find that kind of brahmins who are still strictly following their you know the regular upasanas that you're supposed to do and the kind of lifestyle that is required if you feed those people you will get some blessings out of that feeding and that blessings is going to counteract any mistake that you might have done in any of the other limbs of sadhana so japa is fundamental if you can't do anything do japa that is the basic but if you want to do all the five steps then first is japa then you go to fire and then in fact in the tantric systems they want in traditional tantric sampradayas they won't even let you do homa until you reach a certain level of mantra japa because it eventually becomes counterproductive that is the accumulated wisdom for centuries of sadhana so somebody out of the blue coming and claiming that we can reverse that process and uh, specifically when there's no evidence that that kind of you know taking one thing out of context has resulted in something uh, genuine so that makes it a very suspect thing in we come across many people who actually do homas especially from say the vedic tradition for example no, no. and so that is different totally different that, no no even so, then also so fire itself has various categories of sadhana so if you are doing a vedic yagya which is the larger thing that is different the people who participate in vedic yagya first of all it is not a daily occurrence you don't do a vedic yagya daily you may do an agnihotram daily agnihotram is different so you have to understand what kind of fire you are speaking of so if you are doing a larger vedic fire ritual it requires an engagement for certain period of time so 5 days 10 days 3 days or whatever it is and it requires people who are specially qualified end of the day that is a thing you or me cannot do that it is only those who are qualified because it requires a lot of technical processes etc so that is what a vedic yagya is it's a larger thing not everybody can do that let's put that you know at this moment in india i believe not more than 10 to uh, among even the brahmins also let's put it that 10% maybe who know the processes how to do that and they still do it i, I read in newspaper sometimes some of the major vedic yagyas have been performed etc that is one thing then there is the agnihotram which is agnihotram means daily fire ritual little bit of here the catch is for doing agnihotram there are specific amount of mantras that you do it's not like i sit and i do a 10 hour agnihotram as any hota specific time you do specific amount of mantras you do specific invocations and aarties you do and because you are invoking fire on a regular basis daily basis you make fantastic changes in your lifestyle to be able to integrate that kind of power one of the ideal states for example if you are for real in agnihotram first of all agnihotram is something that should be done if you go by the scriptural sanctions it is to be done only by a brahmins number 2 those who have learned it properly okay b the lifestyle changes are more important i mean let's for a moment if you if you if you believe that okay let's keep uh, the varna the caste factor aside is there any other problem in agnihotram somebody else randomly is an on brahmin does the agnihotram agar ye question aata problem yahan pe hai ki it requires a lifestyle change because fire is very powerful lifestyle change to the extent that you are not allowed to eat food that is not cooked either by you or your wife or your mother you cannot just go out and have ki aaj ki thoda restaurant mein jaake khana khate that is not allowed if you if you really want that system to benefit you so that is why these things were put in place so that it's a whole integrated process you will follow that process if you lead that kind of lifestyle yes then it is a fantastic thing but uh, i suppose each one has to ask himself honestly whether they are able to do that and that is only for agnihotram suppose you change agnihotram into a homa homa is where you are actually invoking deities you are giving mantra outies of the deities and if you keep doing it day in and day out 
it's the same thing. It's like steroids. Initially, you'll feel fantastic. After a few years, you'll not progress anymore. You'll lead to a whole lot of other confusions in and around you. In your Is life. Harmful or you're saying in my opinion, progress? In my opinion, from the spiritual perspective, it is harmful. Okay. I mean, if you're if you're spending so much time, you might as well do it in the way where people have done yeah. it and actually achieved something. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's blocking further it progress, block. but not... I like, myself um, have done a lot of homas, so I know what I'm talking about. And then I had gone to... When this realization came to me that this process does not work, I actually went to different really accomplished people in different parts of India, both South, North, etc., whom I don't, I didn't know, but I, I, I went to them, I saw them, etc., and I, I was convinced that they are people who have attained to something higher, much higher than what I have at that moment. And I asked them the same question, and they gave me exactly the same answer. And if you're not doing japa, and if you directly keep doing homa, you'll never ever promise. Like Initially, my sister, you mentioned who for a thousand years at Tamakya. My sister, you mentioned. Ah, that was yeah, she was sister. Sort of, but my my that's why whenever uh, the, the one advice I tell people follow the scriptures, follow the scriptures, follow the scriptures that are followed in your tradition. The more you innovate, the more it is going to cost you someday or the other. Because the scriptures, even if you don't look at it as a divine revelation, that is the best way to look at it. Tantras are revealed by Shiva himself, so that gives it authority above everything else. Well, that's why they are Siddha. You can look at it as the accumulated wisdom of thousands of people for long centuries of upasana. So, uh, I mean, seriously, this is the question, uh, this is the answer which I gave to somebody some days ago. If there was a shortcut method to attaining the same thing, say, if I do only homas and I will attain, don't you think people centuries ago would have already adopted that? I mean, they were far more committed to upasana than you can be in this age. So, boils down to the point that eventually, Follow the tradition, and that is your safest bet to actually achieve to some actual spiritual growth. And uh, connected with this is mantra japa. Mm. So, uh, could could we pick up any mantra? You you also said that mantras only work when, especially in Shakta Tantra, when the, you you are initiated. But could I pick up a mantra, or you know, even in, for example. When you're doing meditation on chakras, there are supposed to be deities and mantras or syllables, uh, beach mantras associated with them. Could you pick up those and do it? Would they benefit or would they become a hindrance because no, you're in not my, initiated? In my view, Vija mantras should not be picked up randomly. Okay, unless you are very sure what you're doing and you have somebody to guide you properly. Number point number one, point number two is that if you want to chant something, so the name of a deity does not require initiation, which means suppose you want to say just chant the name of Shiva, okay, Om Namah Shiva, for oh, example. Say Om Jayanti Mangala Kali Bhadra Kali. That's available yes. in our, you know, daily that one. No, no. Okay. You have to understand that. I what is available in small prayer books, etc. Leave it aside. I am talking only about what is authentically accepted. And why I am saying this is because, as I mentioned just to the previous answer. The closer you stick to the tradition, safer you are. Suddenly one day there's a problem for which you will not have a solution. This is exactly what happens to people yeah. eventually. Because your goal is long term. Your goal is not key. I feel good two days and three days. You want to become to that suprahuman state. Okay, That is the aim of Swami. So there are certain mantras which can be chanted and doesn't require any initiation. For example, Nama Mantra of a day. 
how do we know for example in my uh, temple i have a book of all all the Uh, the upasanas that you have to do from hanuman chalisa to everything and there is om jayanti mangala kali over there or om bhri so yeah so, so i don't know whether i should do it or not do it no no i am not I, this is a generic conversation first of all i am not saying anybody you do this or you don't do this that is up to your conscience that is up to you or the advisors who may advise you etc whom you look up to etc so this is i am giving a broad general knowledge of how ideally it should be sure. about that sloka janti mangala kali this is specifically mentioned that this particular sloka can be chanted without the decision so anybody can chant this one okay. in fact it recommends that for a person who is during navratri period specifically if uh, he doesn't know anything else they can keep chanting this as much as possible as much as possible which means they can sit at hours and hours and do chanting of this this is allowed provided of course there is a basic criteria you have to determine say you are a person who doesn't like who doesn't feel any connection to kali you feel a connection to some other form etc then to such an individual if you give this mantra it may not produce a result or it may produce a counterproductive it may turn counterproductive so that basic idea has to be there okay so you like krishna so you pick up something from that is more suitable and that is allowed to be chanted without initiation pertaining to that deity but when it comes to vija mantras and other things uh it is best to take advice why that is because for some people yes there may be 10 15 cases where first of all most people chant very casually which means that they chant say five times 10 times yes they do not do it in the method of doing an upasana now same thing if you do it in the form of doing an upasana say for half an hour or something every day and so many malas and all that then the character of the mantra will change it will start interacting with it question is can you handle that interaction the methods the rules are given only because it takes into account every possibility that there is all safeguards are put into place so that is why if you violate that safeguard and you just randomly keep uh, picking a mantra and keep doing that on your own uh, in the proper manner in which is you know in the systematic manner for example and then tomorrow a reaction of that mantra comes then the question is how will you be able to handle it that is where the question is that's where the trick is so that is why in my opinion it is best to take a uh, at least a, not even initiation at least a, what is called upadesha mantra before doing it that reminds me of a conversation with the one contemporary of jiddu krishnamurti also i think called ug krishnamurti and anand venkatraman in his talk mentioned this that he actually goes to um ramani ramana maharshi and says this enlightenment can you give it to me and he says i can but can you take it Yeah, sort of. <laughs> that. Mm. Okay. Anyways, just coming back. So, the do you have a maybe you can publish this the list of all the normal mantras you one can chant during say Navratri or on a daily worship like Om Jayanti Mangala Kali. Is there a is there a list of such things? No, I you I can? don't have a list like that. But as I said, if the best option is to chant Nama mantras. Nama mantras are basically every deity, whichever deity you like, is going to have a. List of hundred eight names. Chant that. There is no problem in chanting that. Don't add any vijj mantra to it. Don't add anything. Just that. If you keep doing it sufficiently and sufficiently doing it, not once. एक बार से नहीं होता है. Spend sufficient time so that it is at least an hour to hour and a half. You doing it and you do it for few months, you will see some result. Some effect will happen from that. And if you also the other thing is that if you want something more than that, then you have to actually make that effort. Which means you go and meet people. 
who are more knowledgeable, who may be in the position of gurus or something like that. And you say that, okay, I want to do this person. And you tell me what is the path. Discourage randomly picking mantras from books, texts, etc. and just doing it on their own. There are things like Hanuman Chalisa, I suppose everybody can do. Because first of all, it is not typically a, uh, you know, a Sanskrit mantra or Vija mantra. So it is incredibly powerful and it uses the bhakti of the individual. That is fine. But if you have to do something more, for example, the Navana mantra and all that, it is very good to take Diksha. Because it may not cause anything, but if it does, then how are you going to handle it? That is the big question. Yeah, I get it. So you also mentioned that, uh, I mean, the Om Janti Mangala Kali, if you have no connection with Kali and you go and uh, worship, it may be counterproductive. So I want to understand this a little bit better, if you <laughs> bear with me. So mm-hmm. on Navratri, for example, there's a temple, South Indian temple near my home. And in North India, we have a shortage of good old temples or very well done temples, I, I feel. Uh, so I go here and there is, mm. it's, it's a Kamakshi Devi uh, mm. Mandir. If I sit in the temple, which mm. I often do and just do this some chanting, for example, with Kamakshi Devi of Om Jayanti Mangala Kali, mm. you're saying it could be counterproductive. Mm. Because, so, no, yeah. not with this. You have to be, so you have to be very specific. So if you're saying that, uh, if, you, if you're an individual who does not connect to, uh, if you're an individual who does not connect to Kali and you keep chanting, Jayanti Mangala Kali regularly and say, not just five minutes chanting may not cause anything. Suppose you do five hours chanting, you are very desperate to see what this mantra does. Okay, so you every day spend five hours on this for two months or three months, etc. And you are not ready to face Kali. Then it is going to cause a shock into your nervous system. Be very blunt about it. And I've seen that kind of cases also. People taking up mantras which is beyond their capacity and thinking that they will pull it off because they're very brave. It's not that. It's it's not a question. Is not that you should not do or should do. You should um, understand where you are and what suits you best. To what degree you can do. And for a thing like Jayanti Mangala Kali, which, as I said, is allowed to be done by anybody, uh, chanted so that you can safely chant. I mean, without pushing it to an extreme limit. Pushing it to an extreme limit means sitting and doing for three, four hours daily. That is an extreme limit. If you're doing that, if you're very serious about sadhana, you'll have to do that someday. Whichever mantra it is. The five minutes, ten minutes sadhana never gives any results eventually. It will make you feel good, but it is not going to cause a transformation. Transformation requires more effort. Assuming an average, average person with a busy life, average proclivity and commitment towards religion, average capacity to sit down and do mantra japa, and basically average on every parameter, what is the bare minimum possibility of experiencing anything? What what time? to attain any uh, what is a reasonable time to attain any siddhi uh, that one has to invest and over how long periods of time no siddhi is a very difficult thing siddhi to chhod but experience ke baat karte so whether you can have an experience of a deity that depends on how much sadhana you might have done in your past life busy and all that comes in secondary i had my first experience when i had not chanted a single mantra i met my guru one of my primary gurus right after that so it depends on how much you have done in your past life, etc. But on an average, getting one experience is not a big deal. You can get it if you spend 40 days or something like that. But to integrate that experience into an, your system, into your mind and body and change your perspective, that is much more tougher. That is going to take, let me take years or decades or even lifetimes. So that is why the guru is important because the guru makes this decision 
he observes you and sees that what is the how much you might have actually uh, progressed in past lives which is the best path for him which is the best mantra for him how much should he do or if a person who is not supposed to you know enter into the highest stages of sadhana in this lifetime uh, the guru may give him something simpler to do, something that helps him in the path something that gives him some amount of material success some peace of mind that is enough so these judgments is for the guru to do and is based on the individual who is approaching the guru why is it that most of the local village deities are connected to bhagwati and bhairava uh, and also bhairav becomes the central deity in many in many places of worship rather than shiva could you so that is because the tantric system especially the kalikula tantric systems is bhairava who is the main deity as i mentioned in shaiva tantra it is the projection of shakta tantra happened from the bhairava stream of scriptures from from where bhairava is the you know the guru or the one who invokes who tells you what the tantra is so bhairava in fact uh, even from the medieval era the tantric texts all have this format where bhairava is speaking to bhairava so in that sense bhairava is a very very central figure in tantra there is no yeah about it, doubt about it no two ways about it in fact uh, the genesis of this dichotomy comes in kashmir itself where there was the in the kashmiri shaivism the uh, the siddhantika stream which is known as which is at one point it was prevalent all across india and then the invasions happened and now you have the shaiva siddhanta only confined to south tamil nadu there sadas sada shiva is the primary deity and there are you know various things rituals etc associated with it whereas in the non dual systems of the kashmiri tantra it was bhairava and para bhairava who was considered as the central deity it is from this systems that you had the projection of what you call the shakta tantras in india so bhairava was a very and is a very very integral part of shakta upasana in fact there are bhairava himself as kramas of sadhana you know there are certain mantras of bhairava who graduate from that to higher mantras of bhairava etc etc then there are the ashta bhairavas etc who are connected to the ashtamatrikas then there is a vatuka bhairava whom you have to worship even before you start into proper shakta you know mahavidya upasana he clears the blockages that come in your path things like that apart from this the nath sampradaya which was there from medieval india which propagated the um savart tantras and all that the nath sampradayas used to worship three deities most prominently one was hanuman one was durga and the other was bhairava so because of the confluence of all this bhairava upasana has become i won't say it is very popular but it is uh, it is significant in the tantric uh, circles and also in the village deities because that is where i suppose uh, you needed somebody as a protector a protector deity has to be a little bit more aggressive so bhairava form of shiva is more aggressive than the normal ियंसरी Certain category of experience when it comes to an individual, only then he realizes that this specific deity is my Ishtadev. And then there is a third way, which means if you have with the horoscopic combination of an individual, you can get some glimpse of what nature of deity is best suited for this individual. 
but i suppose on a practical basis you initially start with worshiping the deity that you like best ishta devata you will get to know eventually either your guru reveals to you or you yourself progress to a situation where you have a certain class of experience a kind of category of experience it's not normal experience experience or just a tendency for example uh, i mean i do have a guru but not a um, i mean it's not an initiation from like a guru to shishya in the classical sense of how you may have for example sadguru jagi vasudev is my guru mm-hmm. but there there the initiation form is very very different it's in shambhavi mahamudra and given to thousand people together mm-hmm. and of course for me it has changed me over the last 12 13 years of my daily meditation daily kriya practice uh, however it is it is not like a mantra initiation and mm-hmm. uh, and and you know generally there was a proclivity towards shiva for example and there is a very heavy leaning and orientation in the isha foundation towards shiva shiva worship mm. so that mm. that that naturally sort of attracted me towards mm. so mm. could i actually say that shiva is my ishta devta or is there a different classification of ishta devtas no you can say that shiva is your ishta devta you like shiva that is fine but what i am talking about when i say an experience that is a different thing where the deity appears to you and connects to your soul let's put it this way and that connection is like a stamp on you and you will never forget in a thousand lifetimes that is a specific category of experience but that is high up that is not going to happen easily on day one it is best in in my opinion is there is in fact there is no harm in there is a specific deity you like you have a tendency for in you are liking for it you want to do upasana that's good enough to start I mean, uh, do not be fixated with I have to find who is my exact Ishta Devata. Tavi me jaake sadhna karenge. Better than that, start with something. Eventually, the path will reveal to you. What is the legacy of Tantric Buddhism and the development of Tantric Shaktism in Bengal? Did it influence Vaishnavism as well through Sahaja? Perhaps a related question or a nuance that I had was also that uh, did Tantra travel from India to Tibet? and thereby later to uh, got attached to buddhism or is how is the connection there is also a, a question here which also reminds me of another tweet i read somewhere of uh, jagannath being uh, jagannath puri being connected with the tantra tantra traditions could you explain mm. all of this so these are separate uh, questions in my opinion in my, the way i look at it so okay. first of all sure. first of all uh, there is definitely some so scholars have their own opinion there are some scholars who believe that uh, many of the tantric practices we do today some of them at least have been taken from the tibetan buddhists uh, but i believe that the majority of them is the reverse the other way around which is for example the shaiva tantras which was there in kashmir many of those texts to the extent uh, even some modern scholars uh, believe that not just the texts even the initiation process etc was exactly lifted verse by verse and the deity was changed and then applied to their uh, systems so in a way hindu tantra is older than uh, buddhist tantra is what i firmly believe has there been an overlap between the two and some influence and counter influence uh, perhaps there are two gray areas because this is there are conflicting views on this one is specifically with respect to the worship of the deity who is known as ugratara which is the second of the mahavidyas who was at one point and still is highly popular in bengal and she is a fully tantric deity and tara is perhaps the most ubiquitous deity in tibetan buddhism today one of the most popular deities there are 21 forms of tara they have 
and all that so in this there is some dual opinion uh, some believe that it was the tibetans who took it from the bon religion and then the hindus adopted it some believe that uh, no the hindus were also parallelly doing taravasana so i can't confirm one way or the other it is possible that um, during the time of the you know the pala kingdom who were uh, who had strong buddhist inclination they were also shaiva and hindu tantra also they supported it's not like sorry to interrupt you but isn't tara part of the uh, chonsat yogi so that then would predate buddhism would it not no no the the so the, the yogini tantras the 64 yogini uh, upasana that came in for example started after the shaiva tantras so it is not that the yogini cult yogini upasana system was older than tibetan buddhism no they took the yogini upasana system from the shaiva tantras and they incorporated we also have our and we also had as i mentioned from the shaiva system the shakta system took the yogini upasana and then the cult of the 64 yoginis eventually became on their own uh, you know a fully set path today that cult has almost declined it's the 64 yoginis are worshiped but as a part of the larger tantric tradition not exclusively in that sense i mean uh, it's there the temples are there and all that still but i don't know how much of worship actually happens there today um, that vitality is sort of lost to those temples but tara um, for example her primary identity today is of a mahavidya not as the yogini so there will be names seen tantric system it's diff- it's slightly more different than Uh, other systems and not just different actually there are strong links with the vedic system also but that's a different topic um, the mahavidya names will also appear in the yogini list in fact in the yoginis along with the yoginis you will have there are other pantheon of deities who will have a similar name as some of the mahavidyas also so a deity functions both at a level as a mahavidya and also as a level as one of the yoginis and sometimes as an auxiliary deity to another deity so this is how the system is created tara Can you help explain that sorry uh, mahavidyas yoginis I mean, uh, no this I is mean, no what i'm trying to say is, so what i'm trying to say is that for example there is uh, there are the 10 mahavidyas these mahavidyas among the mahavidya deities will also appear among the krama of uh, the 64 yoginis or in the eight matrikas or there is another system that is also used which is that uh, ganpati and there are 16 16 specific forms of shakti or worship along with ganpati so the same deity may appear at all of these uh, different uh, systems and places okay so these whole process this whole system uh, you know whether it's the ganpati and the 16 forms of shakti or whether it is the dasamahavidya etc so these when to worship which one how does it connect to uh which of the main form that you are worshiping etc these are more technical in nature it was devised by the acharyas who actually formulated the system so you worship this deity along with that this this specific auxiliary deity has to be worshiped this deity and that auxiliary deity may have its own you know if you approach the auxiliary deity it may be another set of deities uh, where this particular deity may become an auxiliary so these kind of systems are there fully in tantric pantheon uh, coming to the question specifically it's possible that the tara upasana actually uh may have been influenced by buddhism but regardless of that the method in which we worship is more uh, we look at it as a mahavidya and the worship is very well integrated into the hindu system there is no doubt about it apart from that regarding the sahajya siddhas who were a set of buddhist practitioners i do believe that the sahajyas 
imported a lot of the uh, you know imbibed a lot of the hindu tantric systems uh, and they formed a method of upasana which was uh, you know call it a mixture of the kolo system the mixture of the panchamukara systems etc and that influenced buddhism in its turn from there that is perhaps the only link i can think of between the way hindu tantra and buddhist tantra interacted more than that i am not very sure what is the relation of sex with tantra why is tantra always shown with sexual practices what is and, and so this it just sort of goes on uh, about mm-hmm. that but basically mm-hmm. you get mm-hmm. that point so and this comes uh, from maybe the... related uh, mm-hmm. maybe I'll, I'll related also uh, and you may want to answer it together or separately what are your thoughts on aghora tantra samshan upasana munda uh, sadhana and so could you elaborate on that so uh... so these are two uh, there is some broad similarities but still these are two different uh, things so in the tantric system after a certain level of diksha is attained then you are um, in fact required in the what is known as the kolachara method of upasana to use five different all the panchamukaras and make offerings to the deity now if the question is that uh, are they valid they are 100% valid for a person who knows what he is doing and he has the right diksha and mind you when you are doing these sadhanas it is not merely a you know it is not sex in the normal way that you understand neither is it consumption of meat in the normal way or consumption of alcohol in the normal way. there is a whole lot of processes that are involved in fact uh, there is significant amount of mantra sadhana that goes into it before you can actually do this point number 1 point 2 is that not everybody not every path of tantra actually requires one to do any of these things there are certain paths of tantra uh, certain sampradayas specifically in the shrikula which are completely known as dakshina dakshinachari sampradaya which is uh, where all these processes are either used as anukalpa anukalpa means substitutes for these are used and then the focus is on the standard mantra sadhana homa etc all this is there so question is for those practices those paths those sampradayas um, when they do they allow these processes is it beneficial if the question is if it's beneficial yes it is definitely beneficial if a person knows what he is doing person is capable of it it is not indulgence remember this that no upasana ever any system in the world is indulgence the moment you think that you are going to enter into this path because it is some you know some kind of uh, it gives you a liberty to behave in the way you do then you will fall so badly that you won't be at a situation you'll be worse than the situation where you have started this is the dictum that the tantras give repeated that somebody who is not fit for this enters into this path you know because whether he thinks that this is a license to act in the way you want etc your condition that individual's condition is going to be worse than when he had started off his conditions will be so bad and i've seen that literally happening to many people but if the right individual enters into the path then every act the whole basic principle of this is that tantra is not to be looked at as completely separate from life so the basic things of life even that which is considered as tamasic which is rajas rajasic and all these activities even through those you will derive an energy and that energy that shakti you will be able to use it and enter into a communion with the deity whom you are worshiping this is the basic principle so there is no question of tantra is not into that only you know i will only worship the satvik form and i will not worship into the tamasic form because the deity whom you are worshiping will pass will show her effect through all the three gunas and only 
a completeness of the tantric upasana happens and this is my specific view and this is also mentioned in various scriptures completeness of the path happens when you can find that energy from everything and anything so it is not that only when i am very well dressed and i have taken a bath and i'm sitting in my own puja room and the condition is very good and there is no disturbance only then i can relate to it that is fine but you must also be able to attain that same state of oneness with the mantra devata if i put it that way even in conditions which are otherwise considered to be completely detrimental to sadhana this is the broad philosophy but apart from that there are more specifications for example there are certain deities whom if you worship without ritually sanctified alcohol the results will not be proper and this is verifiable it is not a question of should i do this should this is right this is wrong etc if you see it if you see one live demonstration of what exactly i'm talking about you'll never have this question in your mind one question on related to sex somebody who has created a devi temple and supposedly there is this thought about or whatever saying about he having sex with the devi what does that mean at all my ye is not about any uh, specific sampraday so if you ask me that what is followed there etc i can neither comment good bad anything because i, I have no idea I've only heard the name but regardless of that in this basic question the first fundamental principle of tantric upasana is that eventually you reach a stage where you have to attain a degree of oneness with the deity so not only do you for example same thing i'm giving to give an example you are worshiping bhairava you attain a state of oneness with the mantra of bhairava and advaita bhava comes in you make an offering of a ritually consecrated alcohol you consume the alcohol it is not you who is consuming it is bhairava who is consuming and in that state even if you take a whole bottle and you consume it there is not going to be even one trace of being a drunkard kisi ko pata hi nahi chalega only in that state any other state you do you will fall down you will do all sorts of things that every drunkard in the world does same principle applies when you are using sex in the method of sadhana you are identifying with shiva if you are a woman you are identifying with bhairava you are identifying with bhairava in that state it has to be done only then it produces the result so when you are identifying as shiva obviously your partner is identifying with devi there is no question about it so there is it is a person who is completely conditioned with the puranic way of approaching a deity will find it difficult to uh, appreciate but this is the fundamental crux of any tantric upasana eventually at the higher level you identify with the deity and then you perform the act only then the act becomes siddha but it has to be correctly done correct identification does not there should be no trace of the idea that you know i am doing it for because it's some fun and this and that then you are 100% going to fall and going to fall very badly uh regarding the rituals and the all the things we are doing everything is it some kind of design to invoke the energy whether it is cosmic energy or universal energy to uh, or force them to come oblige to our request is something like this can be can it be comprehensible within our five senses or we will have uh so if i get the question correctly you are saying that are we uh, forcing the deity to come i am saying that uh, is it mm. something like i i want to uh, uh, draw the parallel between kunti invoking surya something like this we are we are making the arrangements like like that that deity is obliging to our request something like this yes uh, so, in terms of rituals or something like this whatever we are doing on uh, what i want to uh, want to say that is this there is should be some significance or whatever we are pujas we are doing we, 
rituals we are doing, some uh, the form in the way we are doing. Is it something like this? I just want to reconfirm on this. Okay, so if I understand this uh, correctly, yes, there is one element of it that when you're using a specific mantra, you're actually calling a deity. So in a way, when you call somebody, there is always a certain amount of force that you're applying. That is why the process, the technical method of mantra, purusharan, and everything is given to do it correctly. So by the original idea was that if somebody is that capable, he doesn't make any mistakes in his personal. If you follow the method, the deity will be obliged to come to deity will come to you because the deity is bound by the mantra. When you are calling, when you are chanting the uh, mantra, basically you are forcing the deity to come near you. But that requires a certain perfection of mind and body, which is not easy in this age. Ninety percent people, ninety what, ninety nine percent people do not have that kind of exact proficiency in upasana that. Nobody is a rishi today that you know. I will now do this sadhana, and the deity has to appear. It hardly works. So what you do is that you follow the rules to the best of your ability. Along with that, you also add certain amount, uh, and that is fundamental. In fact, in Kali Yuga, certain pure devotion to the deity that you are not forcing. Also, you are also asking very politely, very humbly, and very sincerely that please appear. When you add these two together, your chances of success will increase. But if you want to, yes, the rituals are in a way designed. Actually, you are right in that sense. In the, if you add it, uh, if you go purely theoretical, that some of the rituals are designed in a way that, if it is correctly done by the person of extreme capacity, the deity is bound to appear to you. But only question is that capacity and all that has been corrupted in this age. So uh, that method will not exactly work. So what we do is that. We still follow the ritual process because that is the best way to invoke the deity. That is why the mantra sadhana all that is there. Along with it, you also have certain humility, certain amount of uh, devotion, certain amount of craving for the deity above and beyond all other things. And then there is a reasonable chance that you may succeed. Could you please suggest ways to increase our individual shakti for spiritual and material progress apart from strict maintenance of brahmacharya? What should we do? Discipline. Shakti is bound by discipline. You make a rule, for example, that every day at three you will get up and till five uh, you will sit and do mantra sadhana, and you make that follow that rule so strictly that even if uh, stage or maybe you make a sadhana rule that you know this particular mantra I'm going to chant every day, so make three malas, and your discipline is so strong that um, tomorrow if somebody comes and tells you that uh, uh, you are going to die. Right today, in half, you know, the next day itself, the god of death comes and tells you, let's say, that you're going to die, and you request him that all right, and there's no problem in dying, but give me half an hour, I'll just finish this mantra and then I'll die. If you have that kind of discipline, you will succeed. But most people, and not just succeed, that is, discipline is the key to making, to creating Shakti. There are three levels of Shakti, which is one is to generate Shakti, one is to integrate it into your mind and body. And third is to apply it. Each of them are progressively more and more difficult. First stage is just generation. Generation requires serious discipline. Integrating requires even more discipline. And application to which for the baad mein aata hai. Only problem is a lot of people want to go directly into the application path, and then uh, what happens is you make mistakes. About Gayatri mantra, I heard from a friend that he was uh, doing it. Uh, he was mentally. Uh, 
chanting it not uh, doing verbally so does that work if we chant it mentally or it has to be chanted uh, verbally only so this applies not just for gayatri i mean this applies for all mantras perfect mental chanting of a mantra at the initial stages is near impossible because you will require exceptional concentration concentration is again a byproduct of shakti so how much shakti you have if you if you what most people do is that they keep uh, they don't chant it out loud but there is lip movement and all that so i suppose in the initial stages that is fine eventually as the mantra gains more power as your mind and body transforms a bit you will be able to chant even without moving of lips without any sound it's entirely absolutely mental chanting and in that state if you can chant a mantra the power will be tremendously great but most people will not be able to do that for a longer mantra for any sufficient period of time which means that you may be able to do 10 counts or 15 counts and then you will feel like okay let's move the lip or something like that or the next day you will feel that uh, you know it takes way it's taking way too much effort and time so let me just do it two or three times and then your process your discipline will break so something or the other will obstruct your flow unless you are very special from birth which i'm assuming no one is so uh, there is no problem in initially chanting with slight movement of lips after you go to a higher state automatically your mantra will become very silent and then you will not have to chant so much also even one mala will produce tremendous effect if you can really silence your mind and if you can chant completely silently uh, i have a very common man kind of question from mm. uh, from the complete talk what i could understand is that this whole path is for experience matlab sab kuch experience ke upar aa jata hai ki aapko experience hua ki nahi अगर हुआ उससे ऊपर चाहिए तो ये करिए उससे और ऊपर चाहिए तो ये कीजिए देर इज नथिंग फोकस फोकस अबाउट यू नो यू नो ये भगवान वो भगवान ये वो यूर यू नो डिमिस्टिफाइड इट इन वेरी 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 प्रैक्टिकल वे अच्छा मैं अपनी ये बात करता हूँ और वही आपसे क्वेश्चन है मेरा म्यूजिक को लेकर के जैसे ध्रुपद फॉर्म ऑफ म्यूजिक है उसके थ्रू मुझे कुछ एक्सपीरियंस हुआ जो और जैसा आपने बोला कि वो आपकी आत्मा में बिल्कुल प्रैक्टिस करने की कोशिश करता हूँ हाउ टू इंक्रीज दैट एक्सपीरियंस नंबर वन नंबर टू क्या क्या मेरे लिए म्यूजिक का ही तरीका है या तांत्रिक तरीका भी है so uh, there are two things here say so, as i see it to increase an experience the aim of an experience is not to stop at the experience first thing the aim of the experience is that eventually and i am talking only from the sadhana point of view kyunki um, my knowledge of music is negligible i mean you will be a better person to explain music to me than me explaining to you but from the sadhana point of view uh, experience एम यही है कि यू रीच स्टेट वेर यू आर इन दैट एक्सपीरियंस ट्वेंटी फोर बार सेवन चौबीस घंटा उसी अवस्था में आप रहेंगे दैट इज रियलाइजेशन विच इज मच हायर देन एक्सपीरियंस टू इंक्रीज अ स्पिरिचुअल एक्सपीरियंस टू अ रियलाइजेशन और परहेप्स इन देश ऑफ म्यूजिक आई एम जस्ट गेसिंग इट वुड बी दैट यू हैव अटन एक्सपीरियंस से यू प्ले फॉर सर्टन अमाउंट ऑफ टाइम एंड देन उस समय पर आपका ये एक्सपीरियंस अनुभूति होता है यू रीच अ स्टेज वेर एट द ऐसे करके वेन एवर यू वॉन्ट इट यू कैन ब्रिंग दैट एक्सपीरियंस यू एक बार पांच मिनट में भी आप कर सकते हो आप उस स्तर पर पहुंच गए हो साधना के एज्यूमिंग म्यूजिक के साधना भी मान लीजिए सो टू डू दैट देर आर 
at least in the spiritual system, there are a few things required, which is A, discipline, B, patience, because there is experience to realization. Even after the best of your sadhana, there is one thing known as time. Until the right time comes, you will not get it. Nature is not going to allow you. And when is nature not going to allow you? I'm speaking specifically for sadhana point of view. When there are karmic balances you need to pay. For example, you have an experience of a very high state of sadhana, which is say a mantra that comes from Shiva's. Uh, I was mentioning Shiva has Lord Shiva's five faces. So usme jo upar wale jo face hai, which is the it's known as the Uddhamna face of Shiva. The mantras that come from them are very spiritual. That is called the Anuttaramna. So in that state, you basically become like almost like a deity, like a god in that state. Lekin, if you start chanting a mantra like that, what is going to happen is that it is going to cause it's going to cause full disruption into your life. Until it makes you into that kind of a recreates into that kind of a being. Otherwise, what will happen? You will stop that sadhana only on your own because you will not be able to handle the pressure. So nature has a check and balance mechanism. On your own, as an, at an individual level, to increase an experience, you have to keep A practicing, B uh, patience. These two are very important because you cannot control time. Everything requires a certain time. You may have to do 10 years of sadhana and then suddenly the next day you may get a tremendous experience and then every day you will get, keep getting experiences. Then you may think that may the sal kya barbad kya. But who knows, maybe that 10 year actually helped you reach that stage. So something like that. And in this, the other thing is that I remember when I first started my sadhana, I was speaking to somebody who was more senior. And he asked me one day, Ki agar bola jai ki, you will not attain anything in this lifetime. So are you going to stop your sadhana? Uh, I said no. So he said, so this is what is important is this is the question that you must ask yourself. Ki agar you know for a fact that you will not succeed. Are you going to give up the path? Are you going to say, if that is the attitude, you will definitely not succeed. Your attitude towards practice should be like, even if I don't get a single result, I am not going to reduce the amount of effort that I am putting from my side. If you keep doing this for decades and decades, there is a time possibility that at one point you may actually uh, attain a state which is higher than what you are. Your experiences will become more deeper. There is a weightage to the experiences. There's a experience that will translate into a realization. Because realization here, once the realization comes, then it transforms you. So this is the way is to practice and the way is to have patience. Because there's no no easy route. As you, especially as you go higher and higher, it's like... Uh, if you're running a 100 meter race, after the 95, 97 meter, every step will take 10 times more effort. And there, if you give up, you give up. Nobody is waiting to give invitation card. The universe doesn't care. It's up to you how sincere you are, how desperate you are. So like this. So for me, the uh, if... if uh, जो आपने मुझे अभी आंसर दिया उस आंसर से मुझे जो मेरा आंसर मिला वो ये है कि मेरे लिए म्यूजिक ही पाथ है नॉट नेसेसरीली तांत्रिक आई हैव ऑलरेडी गॉट दैट एक्सपीरियंस हां सो इफ यू हैव गॉट एन एक्सपीरियंस इन अ पाथ देन यू शुड स्टिक दैट मींस दैट परहैप्स आइदर समथिंग यू माइट हैव डन इन योर पास्ट लाइफ या कुछ तो है कनेक्शन सो दैट इज द वे टू एनहांस यू शुड लुक फॉर एनहांसिंग योर एक्सपीरियंस इन दैट पाथ 
I am not saying that you are fit or not fit for tantra because that judgment cannot be made like that, etc. Who knows? Maybe uh, years later, suddenly, आपको कुछ ऐसा हुआ कि you may have an experience in tantra. I'm just speculate करके बता रहा हूँ मैं ऐसे नहीं बोल रहा हूँ कि ये होगा या नहीं होगा. So like that. But what you have already achieved, stick to that more strongly. If that itself, if there's some other path you're supposed to enter, this itself will take you there if needed. My question: It was related to events which are related to a Devi Shakti entering a person. So I am from mm. South India, and since childhood mm. I've seen you know, in in Devi temples, so the women who enter a trance, sometimes men also, a trance-like state, and then people go and like pray to them, you know. And Hindus, we do believe that Devi Shakti can enter into a person, and this is not a higher level person as you are talking about. These are like mm. simple people. So mm. it's like an altered state of consciousness. Mm. So is it? possible for a normal person without doing any of this higher level of chanting mm. to just mm. have that that experience what what would your thoughts be on that definitely there are certain kind of temperaments it requires in a individual and in fact somebody who is an expert he can actually look at a person and say that whether such a person is capable of having that kind of experience but this is only a high level answer it, there are many more nuances in this so when we say that there is a you know a divine force or divine shakti that is entering into a person and um, what you're talking about what it state of possession for a certain amount of time and it's prevalent across india not just in south yeah, i've seen in maharashtra i've seen in bengal seen in the north in hills and all that uh, the quantum of force that will enter into the person the nature of the force etc law it depends on a lot of factors but also primarily on the mind and body of the individual who is becoming a vessel of that force okay so this is very important not everybody is pure enough to hold very high caliber forces sometimes it could be a local deity sometimes a partial force may enter number one and sometimes this happens very often if they keep repeatedly doing this it will have an impact on their body and some kind of uh, breakdown or something like that can happen is this possible it's very much possible is this helpful in this avatar that is if you are doing sadhana this alone by itself will not make you spiritual this is like uh, basically one fine day you go and have a good food at a restaurant and you love it and you every two months you go but you still have to eat your you know dal and rice at home or whatever regular food you have unless you are doing sadhana if you are properly doing sadhana and suppose such a person has this kind of an experience you integrate both this to then it becomes a powerful thing remember the key to spirituality is some degree of control over the process if you have no control of what is happening suddenly something is coming in something is going out how do you know that it is not a spirit i mean most people will not even understand that if it is uh, if it is a higher level power or it is a spirit that is entering unless you are in upasak and you know how what the signs are spirit can also tell you various things and stun you into by revealing knowledge that you think is impossible all said and done develop a system of sadhana as an upas as an individual if you have to enter into any of the paths you have to have a core system of sadhana that will stand by you through anything in life whether it is a mystical experience or whether it is a day to day life or whether you are simply having a fight with somebody else or you are you know watching some good serial or something like that whatever that should become fulcrum of your existence once that is there then that upasana whatever you are doing and it's assuming the upasana of a higher deity whether it's shiva vishnu or anybody some of the major deities once it is working once the mantra is working that mantra is your best friend 
it's closer to you than your father, mother, friend, wife, husband, son, anybody. And that mantra is going to tell you, guide you according to its nature, where you have to go, what you have to do to reorganize your life if the mantra is correctly working. And then you watch all experiences. You see this kind of an experience, somebody getting possessed, you see some other experience, you learn something from it, you see if it is helpful for you or not helpful for you, and have an open mind and navigate the path. That is how it is. So these experiences happen. Most of the cases, they don't make people spiritual because the experiences that happen to these people are not well digested because they don't have a sadhana region, most of the people. So it is more organic kind of experience that happens. In another way of looking at it, there is a certain eruption of the what is known as the secret uh, force inside of the human being, the Kundalini. Partial eruption of the Kundalini and it identifies with the deity to some degree. And at that moment, that certain amount of extraordinary power comes in. But that by itself is not, again, not going to make you spiritual unless you have a, unless you follow the traditional, spirituality is hard work. But the mystical aspect, all that aside, it's very, very hard work. If you're not doing the hard work, you'll not get the result. This is the bottom line of nature. Can you follow two different paths at the same time? Like, would you follow the Vaishnava and also the Shakta at the same time? Because mm. you can't just give up. I mean, you can't just give up one deity that you've been worshipping for over many years and then do something else. Uh, so, there is no... no. Uh, uh, why should there be a conflict in the first place? Sure, you can worship two deities. I mean, there are a lot of people do that. I am not getting the genesis of the question, actually. What is the conflict? You want to continue in the same tradition? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it should be just like this path conflicts with that path. So then you will not be good at both. So keeping, no, it depends uh, on the caliber of the person. It's, it depends on the caliber of the person. Some of the, there are, not only there are people who worship, and in fact, uh, since this talk started off with Shakta Tantra, let's say that Tantra is basically a, specific method of Upasana and Tantra recognizes the worship of all Vaishnava deities by the way. There are full Tantric ways of worshipping every form of Vishnu. Every form of Vishnu in fact. Okay, There are Yantras, Mantras, this, that. Tantra is a disciplined manner of approach to a certain deity which maximizes your chances of succeeding. Let's put it that way. Okay, Thank So you. there is no Thank conflict you. with worshipping uh, that you know I worship Vishnu so I can't do that. No, nothing like that. Can one's Ishta Devta override the impact or influence of Grahas? If it is unlikely that Ishta gets involved in overriding Grahas influence in such a case, what is the scope of Ishta Devta's role in conjunction with unfolding of karma as devised by Grahas? When I was talking about Ishta Devta initially, I think a couple of questions back or something, there is something I mentioned where I said that Ishta Devta is Ishta Devta once you have that experience. A category of experience. This is my words when I say there's a category of experience that it happens. Ishta Devata makes a stamp in you, and that stamp you will it's a different thing. It's very difficult to explain verbally, basically. That you you create a very strong bond, and that's not a verbal bond. There is an experiential bond that happens. Once that happens, then the Ishta Devata, it doesn't override the grahas, but it uh, brings solutions to things. Let's put it this way, in a way which an ordinary Jyotishi, if he or she were to see the chart of an individual who is being guided by the Ishta, will not be able to predict easily what is going to happen. Because the Ishta's power is far more than the Grahas, number one. That is provided you have that kind of an experience with the Ishta Devata. Most people have a very mental idea of Ishta Devata. I like this deity and I like that deity and etc. etc. In that case, the deity is not going to enter into your karmic stream and cause a difference unless you 
specifically design a sadhana and do that in which case you can do it not just for ishtaka any data you can do. 